So Mike and his crew are inside a burning Home Depot for seven and a half minutes with no water. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are mine and those of the guests. And today we have the distinct pleasure of talking to retired fire chief Don Abbott. He's a longtime seasoned veteran in the American Fire Service. And specifically today, we're talking about Project May Day, a tremendous example of how data and research can help us understand how to be safer and more effective on the fire ground. So enjoy this opportunity to learn more from one of our seasoned vets in the American Fire Service. Chief Don Abbott, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I wanted to talk to you today about uh, you're doing the Project Mayday that you're working on, which is a very robust project and very informative uh, to us as individual firefighters and to the American Fire Service at large. And before we do that, uh, but I, I would love to hear a little bit about who you are and, and how you became a firefighter. You, you To me, you exude this this commitment to the fire service uh, over such a long period of time. You know, But you, where did you start? Uh, probably really started uh, when I came back from... Uh, uh, two overseas tours uh, as a combat medic and uh, looked for a, a field to get into when I got out. Um, went to college for a couple of years and then decided that uh, I wanted to try to pursue a, a, a medical background and uh, went to EMT and uh, then joined an ambulance service uh, that was there in Indianapolis. It was a private ambulance service. Then, uh, hey, before you get too mm, far, what branch of service were you in? In the Army. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, I guess we can keep talking. I yeah, okay. <laughs> I was a Marine, so I got to. What's a Marine? Always a Marine. That's right. Yeah, that's, I got to know who yeah. I'm in the room with. Sure. I understand. <laughs> um, so I, I apologize. You were saying that you're, you started with a private ambulance yeah, service. Yeah, started with private ambulance service, then became a paramedic and then a paramedic instructor, uh, then uh, was teaching at a community college, and from there, an opportunity arose uh, to be a volunteer. So I was a volunteer for a couple of years, and then uh, a career position opened, went into the career department side of it. Um, and what neck of the woods are we talking about? We're here? talking about Indianapolis. Okay. And uh, did it for uh, 26 or 25 and a half years, almost 26 Um I think the most the, the two areas that I enjoyed the most was special operations, primarily hazmat, and the second was um, training academy as both of an instructor and, and as a chief in charge of training, um, because I thought that area had the greatest influence on the department as a whole in regards to the way we did tactics and task, and then how they were to supplement um, the SOPs. And uh, um, after that, I uh, retired. My wife and I had, had been doing some teaching, and we started doing something called Abbottville for 10 years. We traveled the country 40 weeks a year, 36 states a year, uh, teaching off of a little diorama that was 12 by uh, 24 feet. And the buildings blew up. They burned. had little fire trucks and different colored string that represented different size hose and uh, was teaching basically ICS 
strategy and tactics. So what, what time period was that in? Uh, that was from basically 93 to 2001. Okay. Basically. So when I, it's funny, when I first got on the job and I, I went to our command training center at some point and I saw uh, the Abbottville that was there, was there more than one or was that kind of oh, like? Oh, no. It, that was the, what I called the Phoenix version. I had a okay. version that uh, we, we drove a truck around and then we had uh, bins and each of the bins was labeled mall, oh, okay. high rise, whatever. So we could go to any place in the country and teach with... A different layout. Most everything we taught and tried to teach was actually May Days or line of duty deaths that had occurred around the country and tried to duplicate to let them know that you could make the same mistakes they did if you don't do these things. And that's where it sort of all started from. Uh, then uh, I had been teaching 20 years with Chief Bernasini and uh, he made me an offer to come out here to uh, Phoenix, take an old fire station and turn it into a command training center. Because we had been discussing for about a year, year and a half, how do we take what I'm doing and make it simpler where you could teach a larger number of people? And it was computerization, making computer simulations and so forth. So right. in 2000, 2001, I came out here. Uh, lived at Station 30 for almost a year as we built it because we didn't have much of a budget. And then we opened it up to do command-level training and then realized the importance of two things. Number one is including everybody in the va valley that were command officers to be on the same page with the same information. And the second was realizing the importance that a company officer has uh, in the initial command and control and developing the initial strategies. So, in yeah, that front end <clears throat> setup is so important. Oh, it is, and I think uh, it's extremely important because good captains make good battalion chiefs, and then good battalion chiefs make good deputy and assistant chiefs, and then later chiefs. But they have to have some place to start with a good base and foundation, but more so uh, being able to apply. A variety of different issues to whatever the problem might be because they are not all the same you know one of the things that we've learned in project Maydane, we're sort of lucky in the valley because the valley does not mirror the rest of the country in a lot of respects when it comes to firefighting but what we are finding is is about 23 percent of all may days occur before a battalion chief arrives so that means a company officer who probably has not been taught much about how to do command in regards to May Day, is now being forced to run a May Day with limited resources. And we're struggling with that because we've not taken the time to train our captains to run May Days up until the point that the battalion chief arrives there. Right. Now in the valley, we've got battalion chiefs everywhere. Yeah, so you, the, can't, you can't you, you know, swing a dead cat, as they say, without him. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're not looking at... In some cases, we are. We've right. been doing a, look, a little bit of a study here in the valley, but in most cases, we can get a battalion chief there within seven to eight minutes. And a lot of places in the country, it's closer to 10 or 12. So as a result, that company officer has to have some initiation in regards to how we run May Days and then how to do it with 
two engines and a truck company, you know, without until other people get there to basically assist. But one of the things we have been looking at over the last three years is the number of our May days that occur to company officers. Battalion chiefs aren't there yet. And when you listen to the audio tapes, we truly struggle with those May days. The company officer um, doesn't prioritize very well. Uh, second of all, uh, part of that is they have limited resources. At some point, you still got to fight fire because that's what's going to allow you to make a successful rescue. But in a lot of cases, uh, they're not fighting any fire because they've sent all the resources in for the rescue. Right. And the realism is that that's not working real well. And so we have to do a better job of training our company officers to run May Days because right. there is a one in four chance that if there's a May Day, it's going to be them running it compared to a battalion chief who may come in a couple of minutes later, then take over and assist. But those early couple of minutes in that May Day being run by that company officer becomes critical. Right. Well, so let's. Let's back up a smidge and talk about like the origin of the Project Mayday. So what I understand about it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that this has been a kind of an ongoing project that's started about five years ago. Yes. Is that correct? Well, tell me, what is it that got you started down this path? I think uh, probably Chief Bernasini. Okay. Uh, we met quite often and uh, had some nice discussions. And one day uh, we had been out teaching. And on the and the next we came back and the next day we were talking about some of the things that we had heard by the locals that where we went and taught. And one of the things was is that there seems to be a lot more May Days than we realize, number one. And number two, nobody was really sharing the information. So um we had some discussions, you know, and he says, Here's you know, here's what I think somebody needs to do and I thought why not me? So I started putting together Project May Day as we sort of saw it um, in regards to um, making it a viable uh, uh, training tool. <clears throat> so I went and did a lot of research. I went to the National Fire Academy, to NFPA, to the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation to see if anybody had statistics or numbers or any data on the number of May Days. Yeah, what would you find? None. Yeah, nobody had anything that they were truly tracking. There was a lot of do you think hodgepodge, miss type stuff. Yeah, do do you feel like there's when you look at the fire service as at large, there's a lack of kind of academic work being done, like data, I think data overall, collection. I yeah. think that's probably part of the reason why UL struggled in the beginning uh, with their new fire science stuff is because we had not been there. We had not done the research. We had not gathered the data. We hadn't looked at the statistics. And then how did those statistics end up becoming results? And I think that's the key. That's sort of what we're looking at in Project May Day is our, our goal is how do we prevent May Days? But to prevent May Days, you got to know why they happen, when they happen, where they happen, who they happen to. Right. So as a result, we've put a lot of time and effort in trying to figure out that piece of the puzzle. After five years, I think we're there. Now yeah. we're sort so, of... Yeah, over five years, like, what do you, how many May Days have you guys collected? We're now at uh, about 6,500 May Days. Wow. wow. Yeah. We're, we're approaching uh, 7,000 probably by May or June. I think we'll be at 7,000 range. So we get about five, four or five a day. 
And I think we only get about 20% of well, all that was, that's That was occurring. my next question yeah. is how, how comfortable are people with reporting it? Do you feel like it's gotten better? Over it's gotten time? better because in some situations early when we got involved in this, we learned that uh, some fire departments punish people who had May Days, you know, mm. and we weren't using the right approach. Right. And we were sort of, you know, nobody wanted to call a May Day. Simply because oh, yeah, they didn't want to be harassed, they didn't want to be uh, singled out as uh, not having it, you know, and all the other stuff that we used to throw on that kind of a person. Right. Now we've learned, no, we need to embrace the May Day concept, and we need to basically make sure that we keep our people as safe as possible. Whether it's through May Day training itself or it's through RIT training, it doesn't matter. Right. Well, I would think that, you know, having looked at the, the study and looked at some of the data you collected, that they were seeing that a lot of this stuff is preventable. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. So um, I think the acts, unsafe acts, make up almost 67% of most Maydays. Well, when I think, when you say the word unsafe acts, I think uh, lack of skill set, right? I feel like, or is it people kind of actually behaving poorly? People, well, it's a combination of things. Number one, we're not following our SOPs. Okay. And part of that, is the firefighter's responsibility and the company officer's responsibility to make sure that we are following the SOPs. And when we don't follow the SOPs, it's when we sort of freelance, and we know what freelancing does. So I think the one thing that we've truly learned in the five years is that your training has to mirror your SOPs and vice versa. If you're doing things that are contrary to your SOP, then it's not healthy or safe. But if your training doesn't match your SOPs, then what do you have to base some of these decisions and some of the support that you need in making those decisions? Because I don't think a lot of people, when they make some of these decisions, think about the legal consequences. But because now the legal consequences has been growing and growing over the last 20 years, fire departments, incident commanders are being sued today or they weren't being sued in the past for their decision-making. And oftentimes, in many of these court cases, we're, we're looking at a couple right now, it basically they didn't do what the SOP said. Uh, you know, it said that in their SOP, the fourth engine will automatically hook to the FTC. It was the seventh engine that hooked to the FTC in this incident. Right. And it was 19 minutes after the fourth engine arrived on the scene. So the, the people who lost the building sued the fire department, and the major tool they used in their court case is they showed the SOP as Exhibit 1 and asked the battalion chief who was in charge of the incident, did you follow this uh, as much as, I, uh, as we normally do? So what does that mean? Well, we normally don't follow it. And then they asked the company officer, and he says the same thing. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a suggestion. It's not necessarily a... Uh, something set in stone. Right. Well, all you got to do is look at the legal definition of an SOP or an SOG and realize, yes, it is significant. Right. So I, I think in, in whole, we've let things slide for way too long. And uh, I'm a big fan of the company officer. I think the company officer is the most important person on the fire department because they're with their crew 24 hours a day. So they set the mindset of doing SOPs, starting with the simple stuff like accountability and not, you know, 
And it seems like when the days we decide not to do these things are the days we have May days. Right. You know, it's, wow. it's sort of like you miss this, you miss this, you miss this. And as a result, you're going to get a May day. So if we can eliminate some of those misses, I think we'll eliminate a large number of our May days. Yeah. It's, you know, I hear what I hear in that is that kind of the training of the task level elements, like there's, you know, how do you, you take these SOPs that are kind of overarching premises and then how do you uh, operationalize those on the fire ground? Right. So you make that SOP come alive. Well, it takes some tax task level stuff. So what, like, for example, like accountability, well, staying on the hose line or, you know, what is your model for maintaining accountability in a zero visibility or IDLH environment. If you decide to deviate from that because you get a wild hair uh, up your wazoo on the fire ground or you, the intensity of the environment changes such that you, it forces you to make decisions that you are not equipped for because you haven't done the training, right? There's that old adage that, you know, during times of crisis, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to your level of preparation. Exactly. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about here is that you can have the greatest SOPs in the world. If you don't train to them and you don't prepare, if you don't understand them well enough to be able to execute them during the worst possible situations, exactly, you're going to make stuff up on the fly and that may not go well for you. No. And what happens a lot uh, is you get away with something or I see my partner or I see another company get away with something and think, hell, I can do it. And I get away with it. But at some point, those catch up to you. It's right. just a matter of time. Right. Plus, you can never train too much for a job that's going to kill you. Right. Yeah. So the, the concept of uh, normalization of deviance. Yes. Right? You oh. do this deviant behavior so many times that, oh, well, it's just the norm now. Yes. It's the new norm, new ceiling, if you will, or floor. Um, yeah. Not good. It's, you know, and I think when you look at training in particular, you don't have to go to the academy to get the training. The company officer can develop it within station. That's yeah. his, it's their crew. It's his crew. Right. You know, and knowing how they're going to act under certain conditions is critical. And I think when you don't train within the station, those are the things that begin to come back and haunt you. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, nobody knows, nobody knows your crew like you do. Right. So as a company officer, it's your responsibility to identify the strengths and weaknesses and figure out where their knowledge, skills and abilities are lacking and then find a way to uh, shore those areas up uh, and building building capacity as a as an engine company is so critical. Um, you know, the battalion chief who's sitting in there, you know, sitting in the bat wagon, you know, remote from you can't can't have that direct connection with your company. They can support you if you let them know what they what you need, but they can't do it for you. That's a really, really important part. So, so speaking of that, so the, I look, when I was looking at this, the data you had collected, I saw some data that spoke to, uh, the volunteer stats that specifically said that 49% of the Maydays were in the first in company. And I didn't see the correlating data for, uh, paid professionals. So what's the, uh, are we seeing a similar trend there? Well, it's, it's close to 53%. Okay. Yeah. It's a, and, uh, you know, when, we're, we're up now to about almost 3,000 volunteer May Days because I keep them categorized as a career side and there's a volunteer side. Okay. There's, there's two distinct differences between volunteer and career May Days. Otherwise, they're the same things. They're the same problems, the same issues. Um, first is the fact that for volunteer fire departments, 
the majority of their May Days come between 9 in the morning and 9 at night. Hmm. That's because their ranks are being thinned by people who don't have second and third shifts. It used to be the volunteer fire department survived with people that worked second and third shifts because they were around during the day to fight the fire. Hmm. So what we're finding today is, is the majority of their May Days are during the day because of the fact they don't have the, the staffing that they, that they need. We're on the flip side of that, the career side, most of our May Days are after 9 o'clock till 9 in the morning. So they're in nighttime compared to daytime. The, the second major difference between volunteer and career is that on the career side, um, we sometimes have a tendency to throw a lot of resources. And sometimes throwing all those resources overcrowds the interior, yeah. uh, puts too many people on a floor that's not meant to have that many Plus, we've thrown water, and if we're in a hoarder house, it's even worse. Right. Where on the volunteer side, they don't have all those resources. So sometimes they're multitasking or taking risks that they probably shouldn't under the circumstances. Right. So. Hmm. Well, yeah, overextending themselves. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah, it's funny. You know, my I was, I've been trying to wrap my mind around this idea that, you know, how you operate when you have a skeleton crew versus the system I grew up in is very robust. And I joke around and say, you know, if a, at the click of a button, I could have 200 engine companies responding to my event if I, you know, if I needed it. Exactly. Versus I recently had the opportunity to meet with some, some folks from across the country and, uh, you know, coming from organizations where they, the idea of getting a three in one on scene is, you know, it's outside the box. Like that's not going to happen for a long time. So you're operating with just a couple of people trying to mitigate this emergency, very different, operational response and so i so i gather the the mechanism for a mayday would be would be a different setup right and yes. I, I think i read in the study that the one of the primary causes of mayday in the volunteer world is uh, medical yes and so that makes me think now like I mean, there's this level of exertion um you know plus you're you know you're coming from work you're coming you know you have a, a whole different setup uh prior to arrival and then when you get there you've got to do the work of four people um, exactly. So you're and, overextending yourself potentially. Yes, and you know one of the the primary problems on the on the volunteer side is most of them can't afford to have that annual physical unless they do it through their family doctor who probably knows little about what we do, right? Or the test that they should be running to do it. So when we look at a lot of the volunteer deaths in line of duty, a lot of it relates to the fact they're not getting physicals. You know, now that's sort of changing because several states now are basically making it a requirement, but also providing some funds to assist into that area, which, you know, is better than nothing at all. And that's sort of way we sort right. of got to look at it. So. Yeah. Well, that's a, there's a linchpin there, which is that funding piece, right? Providing, oh, yes. providing support. And you have these people who are volunteering their time in the community. Well, how do you support them so they can do this effectively? I, I had a cat recently tell me that, you know, you can't mandate that there be four radios or that every person have a radio because the cost yes. is cost prohibitive. And I'm like, whoa, how can you put a cost on such a, an important element of life safety on the fire ground? But, you know, in the real world, there are limitations sometimes. And, and that's an example of that. Oh. Um, whether I agree with it or not, it's, it's the reality in some jurisdictions that that's the limitations they have. And that doesn't mean... That that doesn't is segregated by career or volunteerist. 
It's just right. budget issues. Right. You know, I just was back east and uh, one of the fire departments that, uh, excuse me, attended the class, <clears throat> the assistant chief come up to me afterwards and he says, I've got nine guys on duty. You know, um, how do I, I know what you're saying and I know the May Day, but I've only got nine people on duty. That's it. I got it. Two engines, one's a quint. And he said, that's it. That's all we got. We don't right. do EMS. There's a county EMS. My problem is, is when I want a third engine, they're 15 minutes minimum away. Right. You know, and if I want a ladder, it's closer to maybe 18 minutes. So, you know, I've got limitations on what I can do and how I can do it. But more important than that, I've just got to make sure my people realize that don't go in and get into these situations you can't get out of thinking that somebody's going to be out there to rescue you when they can't get there in time to do it. So I, I think we're not as realistic um, across the board as we probably need to be. You know, uh, one of the things that we uh, start talking about more last year because we have enough data to look at that uh, when you look at a crew of, of three people, uh, an engineer, officer, and a firefighter, or a crew of four throwing in a second firefighter. The person who has, and you would expect more, you would expect firefighters to have May Days right. in regards to their position. But the leading, the person who gets into most trouble at most of these incidences that cause May Days are engineers. Oh, you just put me on my heels. Okay. Really? Yes. Here's the reason why. What we have found in our study is that they only go in on one out of every 11 fires. Are they actually part of a crew? Mm. When you go to training down at the academy, right. what's the pump operator doing? He's operating the pump. He's not in there with the crew with an SCBA on. So what we're finding is a lot of these engineers don't get the SCBA time that the normal crew gets unless the company officer does it in station. So when we went back and started looking at, you know, well, he's an engineer. He's having a May Day. We'll come to find out he hadn't been in a fire for two months because all he does is pump. But this time he's the third or fourth engine in. Now we can take the whole crew in. They, they use more air. They maybe have a little bit more difficulty time uh, uh, communicating with the crew. Um, they're not in a, where they need to be. Because I assume they're going to use more air than the rest of the crew. So I don't want to put them in a position where if they get off the line, they're in trouble. So I want to, as a company officer, monitor their air more so than maybe the rest of my crew because they just don't get the air pack time. And so I think we got to rethink some of the things that we're seeing. And I think this has really come to light in the last year, year and a half when we started looking at engineers or why. And then when we started surveying and interviewing these engineers, what we were finding was, is, you know, we had an engineer that had not worn an air pack for almost two and a half years. Because every time they went to a fire, if he wasn't pumping, he was assisting with uh, another engine pumping or hose or whatever it might be. Or if he was geared up, he was at the door feeding hose. Yeah. Not yeah, or, inside or, part of a crew. Yeah, ferrying up tools or yeah, yeah. pumping hose. It's interesting that, that you know. Well, it just goes to show how 
important the skill sets are, the, the manipulative skill sets that we have. They're so perishable. And, you know, just because you've, you're a seasoned veteran and now you're working as an engineer, your fundamental firefighting skill sets diminish. You've got to be in there exercising the, the, you know, the manipulative skills. You've got to be working with exactly. your gloves on, humping hose with your gloves on, doing searches, manipulating your air pack with gloves on, et cetera. Um, yeah, it's, that's a, we, this really highlights an interesting point. Yeah, we found uh, in talking to the people who do the self-survival training, you know, they're some of the people that struggle the most with self-survival are engineers just simply because they don't get pack time. Right. They don't get operational time because uh, they're outside pumping, either at a real incident or when you come to training, they're pumping. So right. they don't get that hands-on manipulative skill type uh, set to may to basically keep them from being involved in May days or having chest pains or whatever comes with that. Right. So, so it's, yeah, it's that, I mean, it seems so to me, it seems really, really obvious, right. That, tr that you have to work the fundamental skill sets and maintain to maintain them. But we've gotten, we get to a point where we're so um, we've got a lot of skills we've got to manage and a lot of different things we have to stay current in. And it's, you would have to, you have to be training every shift to stay current in all your different skill sets, regardless of your position. If you're an engineer, you need to be anticipating that you may go interior in the fire and, you know, maybe that's not what you signed up for as an engineer. I don't know, <laughs> but you know, that's uh, the last thing you want is a mayday because you let your skills uh, diminish a little bit, right? Now, and, and, and what we're also seeing is some of these skills deteriorate really fast. Yeah. More so than I think, you know, we think, well, you know, I can do that. And all of a sudden, damn, uh, it ain't working out like it did five years ago. Well, there's a couple of reasons. You're five years older. Mm. Uh, number two, some things have changed possibly within your organization, uh, SOPs or training. But more so than anything, you don't get the, the ample time to practice your skills. So you've got to make that time because... We're having to do EMS training, the hours that are required to be maintaining your status, whether you're an EMT or a paramedic. Um, special operations, if you're in special ops, the extra time that it takes there. Then we throw in the issues of mental health, uh, the issues of dealing with homeless people, the issues of dealing with opioids, and all that other stuff. And that training that comes along with that, there's only a few hours left for fire. Right. Fire is probably what's going to kill you. Now, doesn't mean the other things can't kill you, but like we've seen, you know, up in Appleton where we had a homeless person, you know, uh, stab a, a uh, uh, officer. You know, in Long Beach, we had a captain killed in a nursing home by a patient. So I think when we really sit down and look at our problem, our biggest problem is the fire and the issues to come with it. But when we look at what we're doing for training, it probably represents only about one third of our training. Yeah. So it, it's, it's become a, a balancing act or, you know, and what do we do and how do we do it? What do we get for our, our what's our biggest bang for the buck? Right. And what can we do? And well, a lot and of it is just having the opportunities. And that's why I say a company officer is so critical because the company officer can do a lot of training at the lunch and dinner table. Could do a lot of training in the bay. Yeah. Uh, can do things that 
they're thinking, well, you know, I got to wait till we go to Academy for that. No, you don't. You know, you can do it right in station or you can go to another station and two crews come together and do some training. But I think waiting to go to the Academy or waiting for this or waiting for that are just excuses that are leading to some of our May days. Right. Yeah, you can't sit around and wait for the organization to always pony up the training and schedule it because there's just not enough time in the day for the department to, for any department of any size really, to, to cover everything and make it available for you. So when you when you have the, the low-hanging fruit, like you got to go out and train. And, and I was thinking a minute ago, you were talking about the frequency with which we get fire and, and the amount of training we put into it, the relative, you know, the differential there. And it reminded me of Gordon Graham's high-risk, low-frequency model. Exactly. And, and so that's what I'm like, yeah, this is – so when you start talking about where you prioritize your training, the elements, the, the events that are high-risk, low-frequency is probably where you need to spend a greater percentage of your training hours – because that's the event that's going to kill you and you don't get the reps in it. So your skill set's going to be diminished. So speaking uh, off topic slightly, but to slightly change the direction, when where are we seeing the greater percentage of Maydays taking place? What type of occupancies? Okay. Five, well, for the last, I'll say for three years, 15, year, uh, 2015, 2016, 2017, the number one cause of Maydays was falling through or off roofs. At the end of our five years now, it has dropped from number one to number to basically uh, number four. Okay. So whatever we're doing, and I think the new fire science has cleared our, a, a better path for us to talk about ventilation and so forth. But I think we're doing it smarter, better, and safer. That's the recent drop from number one to four. Hmm. Now, number one is getting lost and separated from hose lines. And uh, to redefine it a little bit, lost means you never took a hose line in to begin with. Uh, there are a lot of fire departments, SOPs, and so forth that say you can go into a fire without a hose line. So doing like a VEIS or something like yes. that. Mm -hmm. My personal opinion is if you got fire showing, you probably ought to take a hose line in regardless of what, whether you're a truck, an engine, or a ladder, or be on a hose line at least. Um that's number one, is getting lost or separated from hosts. And oftentimes, what we're, our biggest problem, and the percentage, it's rising about 2.5% every year. I believe that probably in 2021, most May Days will be in commercial buildings, not residential. So we're, so what are we seeing in mostly in we're, residential we're now? We're seeing them in residential, but it's starting to flip. What's driving that, do you think? Uh, more commercial buildings, okay. uh, older commercial buildings. Commercial buildings left vacant or commercial buildings mm -hmm. that were built for one purpose 10 years ago being are now purpose. being used for a different purpose. And in some cases, we have not made them retrofit or mm -hmm. uh, changed the density in the sprinkler heads or the fire protection. So I think it's that's part of it as well. Is that part of the struggle of just getting through all those issues? But uh, uh you know, Bruno always used to say, you know, and, and when you look at over the last three years in particular, at line of duty deaths, we were in offensive positions at defensive fires. We're in places we should not have been, you know. And so as a result, um, now there's a, there's two sides to that. And I'll talk about it just a minute because when we listen to a lot of our audio tapes, there's two things that stand out 
when you uh, in those audio tapes. Number one is we hear a lot of communications from interior crews to command saying, hey, we've got heavy smoke and moderate heat. Mm. We've got moderate smoke, light heat. What the hell does those mean? I mean, there's no definition in an SOP. We have, we've looked at the seven textbooks that are out there that we teach recruits with, and they're not in there. So what we've got to teach our firefighters to basically say is, um, engine one to command, we have heavy black smoke under pressure to our knees. We've shot a ticket to ceiling and we have 500 degrees. That means more. To, I would think that would mean more to you than medium, hot, high, whatever. Right. Well, what's interesting is you talk about the art of smoke reading and, and understanding when you talk about heavy black smoke, what does that say about the actual fire? Where it's burning, where it's located, where it's burning, the consistency of the fuel, the heat of the fuel, right? You talk about the velocity at which it's moving, how important that is to understanding what's taking place in the fire versus heavy smoke. Well, what, what's the quality of the smoke, the volume, velocity, the density, the color, et cetera, that paints a better picture. I know there's some folks out there who have been teaching it, but I don't know that it's, I don't see it as like a staple curriculum and i don't know how pervasive it is i know i've been teaching a little bit at the academy i've seen it being taught but i don't know that it's reaching everybody so maybe that's where that that communication gap lies is in the part of it core content right is is getting people to understand that we need to better articulate the description of the conditions needs to reflect something more specifically versus this kind of ambiguous eye of the beholder type of yes and and again the person outside, the, the incident commander, has a good view. They, they have a view from when they got there till 10 minutes later. Sometimes the reports that we hear on the radio just aren't very good. I mean, they're not very descriptive. Um, it would be hard for me to make a decision as to what I'm going to do next because the reports coming from the inside out aren't very good. Then you have the firefighters are bitching and whining. God, that's the third time commands called us, you know? Right. No, the reason they're calling you for the third time is because you haven't told them anything since you've been inside. So they're having to ask you for the information you should already be giving to them. Well, it's so. interesting, you know, when you listen to radio traffic across the country, and I'm sure this is something that you can speak to for sure because you've listened to a lot of different tapes. How different are our communication models from East Coast to West Coast? Pretty big. Yeah. Pretty different. I know. One of the things that we talk a lot about, and I, I, when I go out and do presentations, I spend some time on this because one of the things that we do well in the Valley, and many people do because they have a good communications model, is you've got to confirm whatever's being said. Uh, so one, I know you got it. And number two, the way you say it back is going to be the way you do it. It may not be the way I said it and wanted you to do it, but the way you repeat it back, that's how you're going to do it. So I may make some readjustments as the incident commander. Uh, engine four, uh, copied, be advised, you know, I want to add something to what you just repeated back because it was in my original message that you may have missed right. or not thought about. So when we, when we look at communications models, the biggest problem out there is nobody's confirming anything. I tell you to do something. Uh, we have a, a, a pretty nasty May Day situation where command ordered crews out of the building. 
command never got a confirmation that those orders were heard. So he's thinking they're out of the building when in reality, two of the three didn't claim they didn't hear it. Hear it. I'm still not sure. Right. But I heard it on the audio tapes, but uh, said they didn't hear it. So they're still inside. He's thinking they're out. So when thing went, things went to hell, we're okay. You know, let's let's go ahead and do accountability, and uh, we're yeah. going to go defensive. Yeah. And a crew report calls him back on the radio and says, Chief, we're in the center of the building. Uh, do you want us to, to evacuate? What are you doing in the center of the building? I yeah. thought I gave you an order to evacuate seven, eight minutes ago. Uh, we didn't hear it, Chief. So the, the confirmation of orders is critical, but we just don't hear it all everywhere. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because that, that confirmation is really important to knowing that the act, the actor that you're trying to get to move has heard and that company has heard you and is complying. I was in a building just yesterday and the crew on the interior couldn't hear command and they came out and go, yeah, are you guys, not, are you guys talking to us? Cause we're not hearing anything. And this is under normal conditions, just kind of a large five story open building, um, pretty wide open floor plan on the inside. Uh, it was a library and yet the crews on the inside, whatever the building was constructed of was blocking that signal. And, you know, unless you were able, like if you, if you're not getting that communication back, then you can't, you can't assume that they've heard you. No. And especially, no. especially when the building is starting to degrade and we're going into a defensive posture or something like that, um, for changing strategies, you know, that is the most important time that we need to be confirming those communications. So I, I don't, I, I can't see how there's anywhere on the fire ground where we really have room for that open-ended conversation where you don't feed me back. <laughs> but it happens. I mean, it's, right. I mean, it's, I would say 50 to 60% of most communications on May days uh, are confirmed. You know, we 35.6% of the time we miss the first May day call. Hmm. Okay, so that, that takes me to a question I had for you. So okay. I know you have, uh, there's a thing you call the 16 phrases, right? Right. Um, which are, what, what are they? Well, we basically, we went back and listened to 5,000 audio tapes, and we scorecarded them so that uh, I had uh, about 25 to 30 people helping me so that I didn't want anybody to look at somebody else's. I wanted them to listen to the radio traffic and basically check off things they were hearing. And what we found was when we basically uh, combined all the data, what we found was is that there are about 16 radio phrases that are telling you that in a short time, a May days are coming if you don't react to it. And so, so these are your giant red flags. Yes. These are the what we call triggers. Okay. And these are basically if you hear one of those on the radio, then you need to start paying attention to the radio. Hmm. And, and let me add one other thing. That's just not the IC. One of the things that when we did our surveys uh, of Mayday victims and their company officers, one of the things that we learned was, was that most company officers do not listen to all the radio traffic. They listen to what they think is important or when they're called. They're filtering. Yes. Right, because they're working. So when you filter that information, that basically means that if something bad's happening in the room next to you, you're not paying attention to right. it until it happens. So trying to get people to realize that you should pay attention to all communications. 
But what we found in these May days that are being missed, it's it's basically one, it's a portable talking to a portable because the incident commander is outside a vehicle walking around on a portable radio, right. which is as great as five watts and that's it. Now, if the radio that they're carrying hasn't had a fresh battery in three years or it's not been charged properly or it's not taking charge, now it becomes a four watt or a three watt radio, which means you're not talking to anybody on the fire ground per se. So we want to get incident commanders in vehicles, preferably with a headset, preferably with somebody else, not them by themselves, so that two sets of eyes, two sets of ears are much better and we won't miss all these May days that we're missing today. Mm-hmm. How how common is the practice? Because I've never seen that practice. I've, I've seen I know. It in, I've seen it in books and I've read about it. But how, so how common is that across the American Fire Service to run command from a you know a whiteboard at the back of the tailboard of your rig? That's almost seventy one percent. Wow. That's surprising to me. Yeah. I get I, I it shocks me and I don't mean to be dismissive, but when I sit in the battalion wagon you know, I get the power of the rig radio and I've got a, a partner with me. I feel um, it just, I don't see how, how we could do it any other way. It just seems so. Well, it, and it makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. It makes, but, and it seems dismissive of anybody else's ideas or thoughts and behaviors, but man, it seems like uh, it's a quiet controlled environment. I can hear almost everything, even with my bad ears, right? You know, my little siren ear, I can still make out traffic and, you know, I've thought, I should probably put a headset on because I don't got the best ears. Um, and but, that's the way we should. Yeah. Uh, what we find in a lot of these uh, where they're outside, it's sort of like when you become a company officer, you're no longer the crew. Yeah. You're the leader of the crew. Mm. And now you've got to change your mindset, your philosophy to being a leader. And what we find is that that transition is tough, but sometimes going from a captain to or a lieutenant to a battalion chief, just as tough, if not tougher. So the habits you developed early, being on a portable, walking around outside, and that kind of stuff, if you can't break it, it it's you're just not going to be able to hear all the May days. It's just what we've learned and what we know. Yeah. Now, we've had some departments that allow their chiefs to walk around the fire ground, but they have to at least have a headset on, which is better than nothing. It creates an isolation for their hearing because one of the things that we do know, and it, there's, it's all fact, uh, mainly through our data, but it's just fact in general that every year you get older, your hearing goes away. And at some point, your hearing really begins to go off. And um, what we've what we want people to pay attention to, especially career people that go in for a hearing test, is there depreciable hearing in one ear or the other or both? For engineers, it seems to be the left ear. Why? Because they their windows rolled down. They're hearing the siren as they're driving down the street. Now, thank God we've relocated the siren because I can remember what was on the roof right over your head. <laughs> you know, and it was terrible. So, where do we, most people in the fire service, and we've been sort of checking with medical departments and that do physicals for their people, the left ear seems to be the ear that we have the greatest hearing loss in. So where do we put the pocket on the fire coat? <laughs> on the left side. Mm-hmm. 
the side that we don't have the greatest hearing with. So I think if I know my hearing's weakest on the left, I want my radio pocket on, on my right on my right shoulder, not on my left. So I think we've got to sort of pay attention to that. It one of the things, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but no, nah, go ahead. Uh, I like uh, tangents. <laughs> we we brought on an audiologist about a year and a half ago because we were starting to see some questions about hearing and hearing issues. One of the things that we have just come across in the last 18 months, and it's always been there. I, I, I knew firefighters 30 years ago. This was their problem. But one of the things that we've ran into, we have 20... Uh, seven documented incidences, 23 of whom have occurred in the last five years, where their hearing aid melted onto their ear or their hearing aid melted into their ear as a result of mainly flyshovers or rapid changes in fire dynamics with heat. So as the firefighters get older, as these uh, baby boomer generational edging at started going to all these rock concerts and, you know, and listening or putting on headsets and blasting it so the people 10 feet away can hear it while you've got headsets on is not helping our hearing. So we believe some of these May Days are just being lost because we're not hearing them. So by wearing a headset, it, it, it allows you to make some of those adjustments. But getting back to the hearing aid issue, I've on our website uh, in Later this year, we'll have some pictures that uh, firefighters who have given us permission to show what their ear looks like after being caught in one of these flyshovers and the things that they're dealing with now. We have two of those firefighters, one male, one female, who had ear hearing aids melt in their ear and have now lost total hearing in that ear. Uh. You know, so and a lot of people say, well, we're going to create an order that you can't wear your hearing aid on the fire ground. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because now I can't hear anything. Can't hear you talking, can't hear the radio. So that's not the answer. We've been talking to a couple of hood manufacturers who are going, uh, who will unveil some hoods at this year's FDIC in Indianapolis that'll just have an area covering your, they're going to double the thickness of the hood over your ears. Now, that's good from the hearing standpoint, but it doesn't allow the heat to be felt on the ears to telling you it's getting really hot in here. Right. So there's a trade-off, and we just got to figure out what that trade-off is where it doesn't put anybody in peril, whether it's you as the person with hearing loss or you as a member of a crew jeopardizing the people that are on your crew. So while we, I think we've known the problems there, not for the last 18 months, we've really saw it. And we're getting now probably one or two every couple of weeks, couple of months that we would have never talked or known about had they not got the word of mouth about what we're doing and what we're learning. But, you know, it's hearing is such a big issue. And that's why for all, everybody out there, if you have a spouse, your spouse probably tells you you hear well, but you don't listen. You know, and that's the other part of hearing is listening. And that's why we come up with these 16 phrases, because I hear, the, I hear the first one. When you hear the first one, now I'm going to start listening to the radio. When you hear the second one, I can almost guarantee the third thing you're going to hear on the radio is Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. 
Mm-hmm. So, so that's the importance of those 16 things. Let me run through a couple just to give people okay. an idea of some of the, the things and that people are hearing. Okay. So we have zero visibility. We have fire above our heads, which is like 81% is what I saw yes. in the data, right? Um, we need more line to reach the fire. Yes. Which, when you start talking about getting into commercial, how, Extending deep, the line. how, how deep are you going? Um, we've not found the seat of the fire yet. We're running out of air, which to me, like, well, that's a no-brainer. Like that, if you're running out of air, clearly you're setting yourself up for a mayday, right? Um, what's a couple other ones? Um, we have a, we have had, uh, we've had a ceiling collapse or roof collapse. These are all seem pretty. Our exit has been blocked. And then what's another big one here? We have uh, uh, partial floor collapse. Yes, you, you know and. <clears throat> When we started going back and listening to all the audio tapes, it, some of these all of a sudden started jumping out. You know, it's like every every tape we've heard, they said this. So, and and again, I, I thank Bruno for basically putting on, you know, he's the one that sort of made, he knew there was something that we could pick up on that would trigger or throw a red flag or wave a red flag at us. And this, I believe, is it is these pieces of communications that you're going to hear that you've got to react to. And if you don't react to them, be prepared because a May Day is probably a coming. Uh, the example of, of you talked about running out of air. Um, for us, low air is anything under 500 PSI. Running out of air is just that. Part of the problem is, is we've now went to these new air packs where the gauges or the heads-up display show double green, green, yellow, and red. So when we, for the last almost two years, we have been listening to these audio tapes. We're hearing more audio tapes today than ever before, where low-air alarms are going off in the background because we they think we've given them more air. Right. It's the same air you've always had. We're just measuring it, measuring it differently today to give you a greater chance of warning as to when you need to leave. But instead, we think we can stay in longer. So I'm trying to talk on my portable, the low air alarm's going off. Command can barely hear me because the smoke alarm in the background's going off too. Now a second firefighter's low air alarm's yeah. going off. Somebody's pass is going off just yes. because. So right? we need to be very careful. One other that's in there is extending lines. Most of the time, this is in a commercial building. One of our uh, firefighters who's on my advisory board, his name's Mike. Um, he was involved in a fire in a Home Depot. And uh, uh, Mike today is a paraplegic as a result of his May Day. He's confined to a wheelchair. Hmm. But his problem, that he went in, first of all, it was a crew of three trying to maneuver a hose line through all that shelving. Is going to be difficult. When they got to where they're at, and they they know the fire's in front of them because of the amount of smoke they're seeing being generated, he makes a decision to call out to command and extend my line. Well, to extend the line, that means one thing for sure has got to happen. You're going to lose water because that's what we got to do in order to extend your line. So Mike and his crew are inside a burning Home Depot for seven and a half minutes with no water. Mm. If I had been the IC, I would have uh, engine 19, be advised, 
I want you to leave your hose line, come out of the building, and we will find a door closer to the fire. Because we, for whatever reason, we think the door we go in is the one we got to go in, and everybody <laughs> should go in with us. No, there's uh, average Home Depot has between 15 and 16 exterior doors. Right. There's got to be one closer to the one we went into that we 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 ran out of 200 feet of hose. Now I I agreed for them they had 50 feet in the parking lot between the engine and the doorway, so they only had about 150 feet of working hose. But it really doesn't matter because you don't want to overextend. You don't want to give them 300 feet of attack line because that's way too much. You don't want to take gated wise inside because bad things usually happen with gated wise. So when we look at something as, as simple as extending the line, we'll do it when maybe we shouldn't. We're in a commercial building. You know, I was just out uh, about a month ago touring the new Amazon warehouse out on the west side. Oh, it's enormous. Yeah. You know, if you go in there, you're not going to get very far because of all the automated racking and everything else that sort of goes in there and, and everything. Right. So you have limited abilities to move hose lines. So you're going to have to go in multiple doors until you f can figure out where the fire is exactly at or what zones in the sprinklers are going off. Because if not, you're going to be wasting a lot of time, effort, and energy that we normally don't have. Yeah, so. absolutely. Uh, so interestingly, to your point about a, this concern about stending lines is the uprising of mid-rise structures. They are more and more now in places where we weren't accustomed to it operating off of standpipes, right there. And the runs in these hallways per code are like 300 feet between standpipes. So you take out your standard 150 foot high rise pack. You might get to the, the door of the occupancy and now you can't do anything. Oh, so you're going to have to extend. So we have to start talking about how we're going to uh, behave differently and how we, you know, and it's, and it's, it has to be driven by, the conditions present, right? Because there's some things that are limiting you. And I think this kind of speaks to a bigger picture. We talk about Maydays and we talk about these different um, phrases, right? That, are, that people are uttering. Well, why are they uttering them? You know, what is our ability to understand the conditions that we're operating in? And are we adjusting our, um, our real-time behavior based on the conditions? We're letting the conditions drive what we do and being smart about where we're putting ourselves instead of forcing the issue, right? I go in one door, hey, I got to keep going versus, you know, letting somebody off a second company come in from a different direction who can probably get a better angle on, you know, they're closer to the fire, but I'm going to get there. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but I ended up extending 400 feet into a, a potato chip factory early in my career. We got, not, <laughs> we got water on the fire, but we had to come all the way from the far side of the building extend all the way through the building. And then we ended up meeting a crew on the other side who had just came in the front. You know, they were like next to the door. Um, just a silly example of how, how far we had to travel. Now had, had something gone sideways and, and, and the event, something exploded or the vat of chip oil or something ignited, or I don't even know what had something changed in those conditions. We could have been in a really bad situation a long way away from our exit. Well, you know, one of the things that we talk about hose line, mid-rise, high-rise, great example. But one of the things that we've dwelled on last year probably a great deal was basement fires. Mm. Not so much that you fall through a hole or there's a catastrophic floor collapse. But what we're finding is a lot of firefighters got in trouble, called May Days, because 
their hose would not take them to every point in the basement. So if you're at the top of the stairs, you should know how much hose you still got left. Because when you don't, what's going to happen is you're going to go down the basement stairs to try to fight the fire. And what you're going to find is once you get to the base of the stairs, you can move about four feet. And that's about all the hose you got left. Because you get 50 feet outside, maybe, if not more, 75. Then you got 75 feet inside. Plus, you're going down a set of stairs that you may have to turn left or right on when you get down there. And then you've only got four or five feet to move in the in the basement. You really can't get to the seat of the fire, possibly. So basement, when we started looking closely at why we were having some of these May days in basement fires and why people were getting burned in particular, much of it had to do with the fact that we didn't have enough hose. And we couldn't actually, you know, we're having to bend the hose in a way that basically pinched it means we're not getting the volume and the pressure we desire just so we can put water on the fire because we don't have enough hose to get to the fire. So I think when you when you get to the top of that stairs and you're going to go down, your decision is that we're going to go down in the basement. There should be two things in place. Number one, a backup line at the top of the stairs. And number two, knowing that you have enough hose to get to any place or any wall once you get into the basement. That's where you that's where you want to go. But oftentimes we don't. And lots of times, and one of the things we're promoting because we think it's the safest practice, is you need somebody who's basically feeding hose through the door. And every time they a coupling goes through their hands, be advised you now have a hundred feet. Hmm. Be advised you now have a hundred and fifty feet. That's okay. I've come in about maybe 50 to 75 feet. I got enough hope to get in the basement. But if all of a sudden I'm, I've came in 50 feet and I've only got 75 feet or 100 feet, maybe I can't reach what I need to reach. So when we started looking and concentrating on some of these fires, especially finding the seat of the fire, what we were getting was 40% of the time, actually it's a little bit more than that, but around 40% of the time, People did not have enough hose to reach the seat of the fire. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And again, training's basically one of those. So talk about talk to me about the operational context. I, I feel like, and you've been around the fire service for a long time. What how old are you when you first got on the job? Or what year was, was it rather? Uh, I I entered the fire department in nineteen seventy one. Okay. That was a great year. That was the year I was born. Okay. <laughs> Oh my! That was a great. Now year. I feel old. That was a good year. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I know that's okay. <laughs> so, um, well, so so it's interesting. It, in the last ten to fifteen years, I think uh, we, you know we look at UL and NIST, and they've been really doing a lot of work on understanding fire behavior and understanding what is happening in the fire occupancy with flow path, with modern fuels, etc. And we're seeing this trend toward or earlier flashover, hotter, rapid, more rapid progression of the fire, et cetera. So how is that, how are we seeing that contribute to the May days? Uh, I think a lot of it's building materials that are being used, uh, a lot of synthetics, a lot of plastics, all that kind of stuff. Then the fire behavior as it affects those. You know, I, I, um, there's a, a, an addition that was just built up in the Peoria area. And, I went up to shoot some pictures to build some simulations and the one of the realtors happened to be there while I was there and 
and we got to talking and so forth. And, and we were talking about basements and, and uh, uh, being on the second floor and getting cut off and that kind of stuff. And they said, had you seen this? And I took a picture of it after they showed it to me. But every step going from the basement to the second floor, two-story house, had a, every, under every step was a drawer. Oh, my goodness. And they pulled out the drawer for storage. So now you're going upstairs that basically has the fuel load just below your feet, right. you know. <laughs> and so you're looking, you're, you're thinking, wow, you know. Uh, and then what you suddenly realize, the step's made of plastic. It's not even wood because it'll take the abuse, uh, the abuse better. So in several houses, you had a drawer that you pulled out. In several of the other houses, you just lift the top of the step up into a storage underneath it. Oh, interesting. So, wow, you know, uh, it's it's things that we're starting to see that I don't think we've seen in the past because we're what everybody wants. If one of the things the realtor I was asking realtor, what's the trend in your business? And the trend in their business is more less compartmentization, more open area. Hmm. So even those three and four foot walls or walls that didn't quite were a couple of feet from the ceiling for decorative purposes, they served a purpose. But now that we have a little compartmentization other than the bedrooms, it gives the, uh, the fire a place to go and to grow very quickly without being held or checked in place. And I think that's part of the problem that we're sort of starting to see is the, the changes in building technology the materials that are used and then how we're using some of that stuff. You know, uh, one of the houses we went in had an 18 uh, foot entry ceiling. There's no way you're going to pull any ceiling in an 18 foot open. I mean, it's just, you know, or you're going to have to get a ladder to do it or something, or we'll have to make longer poles. I'm not sure what, but the, it seems like that we have not kept up well with some of that. And then the flip side is we've over we've got too techy, and we've not we've lost sort of some of our roots. Hmm. Perfect. There's two perfect examples as far as I'm concerned. Airpax is one. Um, I just spent some time with an air man, uh, airpack manufacturer at their plant. I took a tour of it. Pretty impressed. They were showing me their new airpack. They're going to be unveiling it this year at FDIC. It has 16 batteries. Yeah. 16 what, batteries. What could go not wrong? Not <laughs> all in the same place. And I said, not only am I now going to pay $6,000 for that SCBA, I'm going to have to spend four or $500 a year on batteries to put in it. So that drives the price up. And besides that, do we need all these things on an air pack? You know, uh, you know, well, you want that tick where it's right in, integrated into the mask, you know, so you don't have to carry it. How many batteries does that use? It uses six. Okay, that's not a good idea. You know, and it seems like sometimes we're doing things that somebody thought was a great idea to make life better, and it turns out it's it's not as good as what we think it is. You know, right. a ticks is a great example. We, we're now doing a very in-depth survey on our ticks Uh when they're used in May days or they were used in, uh, prior to the May day. And I think one of the things we're finding out is most people don't know how, what a tick does, don't know how they really work. Here, you know, they had a three-hour class, 
you know, on a tick or less. And they don't understand that, you know, while that first ticks we had were black and white, now we got color, five different colors. Wow. Well, what does those things mean? You know, and I think we're overusing the tick in some respects and not using it as well as in others. I just was, I do a, uh, a five-day sort of self-survival class. I do Project Mayday, and I run them through a three-day skill simulation uh, for self-survival purposes in RIT. And one of the things I, I tell people is that are on RIT teams, you got to have a tick not to find you, not to find the victim. But with that tick, I can tell whether you're breathing or not. Just by shooting it at your face piece in the regulator, I'll know whether you're breathing. I can shoot and not having a heads-up display to tell me or looking at the gauge, which is damn difficult to do in near-zero visibility, I can tell almost how much air you've got left in your pack, your cylinder. We've not used those things successfully in teaching with the tick. The RIT team can use it. You know, like I said, I can tell whether you're breathing or not from three to five feet away. I don't have to be on top of you. I can tell before I get to you. You're breathing. Good. You know, or there's air flowing inside your face piece. Or if you're on your stomach and I can see the cylinder on your back, I shoot the cylinder. You know, what am I seeing there off the, the regulator stages and so forth? So I think that in some respects, we've applied the technology, but we haven't applied it correctly because we don't understand it. And I think that a three-hour class on a tick's fine. I believe it should be closer to six or eight. Practical hands-on. That's that what we talked about earlier. Those manipulative skills to be able to make the tick tell you what it tells you something. Now, can you interpret the information? Right. Some people can. Some people can. Yeah, we take a lot of these tools for granted, right? We figure it's a it's the panacea, right? It solves all problems. You know, the SCBA thing. I've heard stories that uh, I've heard. I haven't looked at one or touched <clears throat> one yet, but that they're looking at their Bluetooth uh, tracking devices, right? Yes. So that's all well and good, but if we get so focused on following the little dots on the computer screen, are we actually embedding or utilizing the other practical tools of of accountability, like radio communications and and partags and passports and staying on the hose line and the you know the the visual and and sensory type things that we are accustomed yeah, to touch, traditionally? Feel. Yeah, heat. You know, I mean it. Yeah, I think sometimes we've thrown so much technology mm. at the problem that we depend on it too much. You know, right. it's it's like I, I've told people in my self-survival course, when somebody asks you to do an air check, you don't have to look at the gauge. Look at the heads-up display. I've got two, one green. I've got one yellow. i got a red. Now, if you got a red, I may ask you, can you look at your gauge and see what your actual PSIs are? Mm-hmm. But we've sort of gotten so dependent on some of that technology that we've lost our ability to think in regards to working through a problem that we don't have some of that, you know, it's, it's, and I, and I think it's, it, we're at the board, we're at the border of, of what I call a dangerous edge mm-hmm. is where we've applied so much technology that we've become too dependent and have lost our sense or our ability to make good decisions off what we used to consider to be important things. Now we're using that technology, which, you know, when you talk to most tick manufacturers, they'll tell you that if you drop this tick, you know, four or five times 
his calibration has probably been jarred. No kidding. Everybody knows that. But firefighters drop ticks every day. They yeah. probably drop. Use it as a wheel chart. Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, they're probably dropped four or five times a week, not a day or, or its use. But uh, what does that do to its calibration? You know, uh, you've shot it at a, at a really hot element and the screen went all black come back a little gray and then come back to the colors. That's a good indication that we've basically saturated the sensor device that's in that tick to give you uh, good readings or accurate readings. So I, I think we just got to go back to some of the basic stuff. And, and again, that's the company officer's responsibility is it don't, you know, like I said, I went and looked at this SCBA. It, it's, it's got it's got a heads up display. You've got um, in the upper left, you've got a temperature sensor that goes across the face piece, um, and it reads at starting at four hundred degrees, five, eight, a thousand. Okay, I probably know when I'm going to be at five hundred degrees. You know, I I I, I don't need to necessarily measure it to know. I just sense it because it's coming through my protective clothing, you know. So I think when you look at some of these things that we're throwing out there, like I said, on this AirPack, 16 batteries. Now, it's it's Bluetooth. And I ask him, you know, I have trouble with my ear pods <laughs> to my phone. Right. Bluetoothing and staying connected. How's, well... You're going to have to every once in a while, if you don't see that flashing, if you don't see that that blue light starting to flash, that means that you're losing, you know. Um, Signal strength or something. Yeah, you're, you're not connected all the way. Mm. And I said, there's so many lights in this damn face piece, I'm not sure which one I need to rely on. Because like, you got the heads-up display, you got a temperature gauge, and then you've got this Bluetooth but, uh, light that's telling you whether... And then what does it take me in the middle of a fire to readjust to get my Bluetooth back? Right. No, I, I think we could oversaturate some of this technology. And it's somewhat become an excuse for us not doing training or not having to do the basics. No, nobody, <clears throat> when I go out and teach, I always ask people, uh, when's the last time you did hose training? And they'll usually have, say something, oh, six months ago, you know, a month, a year ago, whatever. It's it's all basic stuff. And I said, yes, but that's our bread and butter. Right. If if we don't know how to advance hose into any structure, whether it's a residence, a commercial building, multi-occupancy, mid-rise, then we're going to struggle. So that's an every month we should be doing some hose oper operation in the bay or in the back. And wrapping it around tires, you know, right. getting it hung up. What? Okay. Yeah. Now, how do we best feed it through a door? Take it into the living quarters. Right. Uh, I think sometimes we just lose focus. And the basics are the focus. And we've sort of gotten away from that. No, that's good. It's, it's, impo it's so important to remember that. Yeah. It's, the, and it's, I think that whatever, whatever your tools are, even if it's using technology, you better be training and you better find out how, how it's going to fail. What are you going to do when it fails? You know, 
that's something that, you know, even with tick cameras, you know, you pull your tick camera up and you checked it in the morning and you pull it up later that afternoon and it's dead or something didn't function. Like, well, if you are solely relying on that tool to function, you're in big trouble. Yes, very so much so. Make sure you have, uh, you know, redundancy in your systems. You have a backup plan in place. You've trained on it and you're focused on those fundamental skill sets. I, I think that those fundamental skill sets are, are just so critical. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we're sort of tracking with the use of the tick, did the number one person have the tick? Did the number two person on the crew have the tick? Did mm. the number three? And it's sort of funny because whenever it's been the number two person, they have told us that there's a lot of interference off the scotch light materials of your gear, oh. as well as most of the time you're shooting the butt of the person in front of you. Nobody wants you to know, see that. No, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> and if it's in the number one position, probably this person's also got the nozzle. Right. So when they shoot the tick, are they getting false readings because of the water they're applying, uh, basically saturating the air with water that's not giving you accurate heat readings? So, you know, as we go through this, you know, where does that tick need to be? In, yeah. in well, you crew. start realizing the true limitations of that of the yes. technology. Oh, like, very much. So. Oh, this is a great thing, but at the end of the day, you're limited by your knowledge of how it works. You're limited by the environment that it's operating in. It has some engineering based. Uh, very much so. You know, not, it's not engineered to function properly with all these different elements or the variables that are positioned in there, and you just assume that it is. Well, they built this for firefighters. It should be perfect. Good to go. Yeah. Um, but not necessarily. You know, so. it's. I think one of the great examples uh, is our radios, and I'm going to speak for the the whole rather than the few. But the basic fire radio that we're using today is a cop radio. Mm-hmm. It was designed for cops. Its functionality is designed for cops. The orange button originally was for was for cops. It wasn't in the fire service. We didn't bring that to Motorola's attention. Law enforcement did, uh, because they use it differently than we do it, you know. Um, but it's sort of interesting because you go, we go into a, a fire with a radio that, first of all, we go into environments where the radio is not even waterproof or water resistant, nor will the case or the cables and so forth, antennas, withstand certain degrees of heat, three or you know, three, 350, 400 degrees, you know. So <clears throat> we're compromised with our communications because of the technology because we only, basically the fire service for Motorola only buys about 30% of their, 30 to 35% of their radios come from the fire service. The remaining is law enforcement. So they have to cater to that customer because that's who buys the most product. Mm. So until... Somebody decides the importance of all that. Our radios just aren't going to be what they are or need to be. Waterproof, water-resistant, have some heat capabilities, have better shielding for the cables, all that kind of stuff. Simple stuff that we've not bitched enough about it. We've not bringing out enough focus to the air pack manufacturers or the tick manufacturers or the radio manufacturers to what the problems actually are. And until we do that, we're going to get what they want us to have. Right. Well, it's interesting that you say that because over the years, uh, our, you know, if you look at the evolution of just PPE in general, from when you came on the job to where it is today, that was, you know, I believe largely driven by firefighters saying, Hey, we need better protection. 
and and simultaneously the operational context the, you know the fire ground has gotten hotter and so you know we keep making our gear more robust and the fires are getting hotter and we, you know we're finding areas of limitation so now you talked about that you got to go back a smidge you talked about the uh, hearing aid issue and then the hood manufacturers coming up with special things that will help provide extra protection over the ears and i'm like man if we start you know how much protection do you need pretty soon you're a baked potato inside there right you're wrapped up on this cocoon that will protect you but you're cooking on the inside there's got to be some breakover point there but anyways we keep driving toward more uh more technology better equipment i think that it's important that we we can't just pick up every whiz bang gidget and and go with it we have to be thoughtful about the way we apply it and then we have to make sure that our training is on par as well. The fundamentals have to be on par. Our training with the new equipment has to be on par and we have to make sure that we're putting it in the right place at the right time. You know, I can, you know, you, you mentioned fire gear. I can think about the, the original fire gear I wore was three quarter boots, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a coat that went down to my knees, you know, I mean, and then as time has went on, the gear has gotten better and better. But again, we, we don't want to take, the senses away from us by overprotecting ourselves because it allows us to go in areas we shouldn't be going in to begin with. Right. You know, and I, and I think that's a real concern, you know, and everybody, uh, I was, I was listening to a podcast, uh, I guess it was near the end of December, it was between Christmas and new year. And one of the comments that, that, that was being made in there was, is that, uh, uh, we need to make, we need to up the TP, the TTP of the gear. We need to up those numbers more. And I'm thinking, well, no, there's a reason why those numbers are what they are today. Right. And that's, what I, was, that's and, what I was driving at was that the, the better the equipment gets, the further deeper we go into these fires, like the, but they're getting hotter and hotter uh, and hotter. Yes. It's the environment is probably not appropriate. And, and the, the person that was doing the podcast said that, well, we have the NFPA standards and, and, that's what makes us effective. Well, yes and no. The problem is we do have the NFA standards, and they've done a good job in providing us better health, better safety, and better protection. The problem is it takes four years for some of those standards to change. Right. And it's the same way sort of with the fire code. Uh, we see a problem, you know, right now, and, and I will say one thing about the NFPA just recently is we saw a problem with lithium batteries. We had a significant incident in Peoria uh, where some guys basically were involved in an explosion. The NFPA acted very quickly on that, as they should, but in their normal process, it would have taken three or four years to ever get to this to the point we needed to. They were able to get it done in almost six, nine, almost a year. So I, I, I think that what we've got to realize this is why we want to make all these changes. It takes time and we need to make sure we make the right changes at the right time, the right way. And that we don't have to keep going back. And when I was in charge of special ops as a chief uh, in my office, I had a closet or a sort of a closet and it was my one of a kind closet because we bought one thing to see if it worked or not and it didn't so it went in that closet and finally i started tagging things when did we buy it and how much it did it cost because one day i opened up the closet and realized there was no more room 
you know, and at some point, you know, damn, we bought all this crap. What are we going to do with it now? Right. Well, what we learned was is a lot of this stuff these people come up with, yeah, it looks good right now, but doesn't hold up over time. Right. Or it's too expensive to keep up to date. Or um, it's just too costly to begin with. You know, uh, in Hazmat, we've got some of these new WMD meters that are fifty, sixty-five thousand dollars uh, They don't, and then you find out they don't ride well in a truck. Well, how in the hell are we going to get them there? You know. Right. So I, I think we can, we can overdo technology. I think we just got to make sure that, that when we do our training, we, you know. Let them take a tick in and now say, okay, tick don't work anymore. Now what are you going to do? Now you get your sensors got to become your tick and you got to rely on those sensors or your crews, your crew members telling you, Hey, it's getting hot in here. You know, well, cause they're in front of you. It's getting hotter on them. That's for damn sure. It's not as hot for you. So I think that when we go through training, I think we've got to make adjustments, you know, okay, that tick's not working. Okay. Here's the flow you're getting because we actually put a hose clamp or we put something on the hose to reduce the flow and the pressure. How are you going to react to that? Uh, oh, we'll get water. We'll get more pressure later. Let's tell them on the radio. Okay, maybe you need to back out of that room to the hall so it's a little safer until you do get that pressure or you do get that volume or whatever. So I think sometimes we've sort of abused some of our own system you know uh, uh, I was just down at the training academy and we got to talking about uh, recruit training and one of the things we do in recruit training was we don't teach recruits how to say no go because everything that we base it on is a concrete building that we're setting fires in and it's always a go because that's how we got to teach them there should be a point in time where we pull up on an engine, they get off the, the engine, they walk over to the concrete tower, and they drag their hose, open the door, and suddenly realize, hey, we're not going in here. We need to teach them. There's a go and there's a no-go. But yeah. I think in recruit school, we're, we're, we put too much emphasis on go, 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 go. And all of a sudden, we don't give them the decision-making factors of no-go. We shouldn't be going into this. It's a tower and that's training, but no, we shouldn't be going in even on this. Well, one, I will tell you one of the things that we've been doing the last two and a half, three years has been teaching smoke reading and fire behavior to the recruits. That's so they're coming out with a better, a better base than I was given, right? When it comes to reading, you know, the fire and under, and so having conversations about, Hey, what, what, are the variables on the fire ground here. Now I know you're not a company officer responsible for making command decisions, but you are responsible for potentially figuring out where to take the hose. So where's the fire located? What's the smoke telling you about where it's look, you know, where, where it's most likely the seat of the fire. So these are huge skill sets that are so important. And the thing about firefighting is that, you know, 2% of what we do is tactical and 98% is human beings, right? It's about humans making decisions and, and, have acting that out, having the right behaviors follow. And, um, which I, I love, um, I really love what you're doing with the Mayday pro with project Mayday because it's looking at what we as firefighters, how we're, how we're engaging in our job, what are we doing? And what are the, some of the things that we're missing that are 
causing us grief. It's so important that we let, um, that we do some data collection and we look, and then we critically look at it and say, well, what's really happening on the fire ground and how can we behave differently? It's so important. I think one of the things that we have, that we've known for years, but I think statistically we're now seeing it is that we lose situational awareness. Right. And we get so fixed at what's called tax fixation. We get so focused on the task or looking at the fire that we don't look to our left and right. We don't look behind us. We don't look up, you know, because we're so tax fixated on what we're supposed to do that all of a sudden, damn, there's fire behind us. You know, it's a little bit too late now to maybe react to it. So what are we going to do? And I think situational awareness, which leads to decision making and disorientation. When you get those three factors interwoven in a situation, mainly in a, in a flashover or collapses, uh, we don't react well. And, and in part, it's because we've not given them all those tools that they need in their decision making process to fix the problem. And I think self-survival training was a great start because 36 or excuse me, 39% of our May days, basically it's self-rescue. You rescuing yourself out of your own situation. Next is your crew. Next is another interior crew. Only 6% of, of rescues are root teams. That's it. Yeah. And said inside so, out model. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And, so what we need to realize is, number one, we still need to do writ training. But at the same time, we need to make sure that everybody understands self-survival is your key. It is you taking, a, taking 15 seconds to grasp your situation that you're in. And how can you possibly remedy it after you've called your mayday? What can I do to get myself out of here? What can I do to slow down my breathing to give me more air? All those kinds of things. And I think sometimes we lose focus of that because we look at the big picture instead of the individual and the individual problem. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a great place to, to, pull, okay. it to pull it to a close. So, uh, Chief Abbott, if um, where where can people find uh, – well, two things. One, where if they have a Mayday and they want to participate in the Mayday study – how do they do that? Uh, they go to our website, and they can basically download the information. It, it comes to us. Um, understand that uh, I get firefighters submitting May Days, and that's great. Uh, we, we still want that. But um, I'll ask them, whoever submits the May Day, I'll ask who is going to be my go-between between the fire department and Project May Day. And then... If it's a really serious May Day where there are serious injuries, maybe even a line of duty death, I usually want to talk to the chief in the first seven, ten days after the May Day, one-on-one. -on -one. I'll, I'll talk to him on the phone. Have you ever heard of Project May Day? Yes. Would you like to participate? Yes. I'll send you everything you need. Or, no, I've never heard of it. So we'll send them a little bundle of or a packet of information about what we do, how we do it, trying to get them involved. Right. So that's the number one is, is and so that's, make that notification. Um, and they start that ball rolling by contacting uh, projectmayday.com, right? Yes. Okay. And I'll put... Dot net. Oh, it's projectmayday.net. Net. Yes. Okay. I'll put some links uh, 
wherever this podcast is, where it's loaded up. I'll okay. put some links there so people can track it down. Um, if they want to reach out to you personally or if they want to, um, you know, pull you in for some teaching or something like that, how do they reach out to you? It's uh, Donald, uh, D-O-N-A-L-D-E, Abbott, A-B-B-O-T-T, at yahoo.com. All right. Very good. Chief Abbott, two things. One, thank you so much for uh, being engaged and and for taking the this tremendous amount of work that it takes to put together a project like this. The number of hours of listening to audio, uh, that alone it, it just sounds completely overwhelming and mind-bending to me. Uh, so thank you because the, the value of the information that we're getting out of this is really, really critical to helping us as individuals, as organizations, um, be better prepared for the work that we do for the hazards that we're putting ourselves in. And it's, it's really important that we share this information with each other. So thank you so much for putting well, it out there and for doing it. Thank you for doing the podcast because the reality is that we can't get to everybody. And that the nice thing about podcasts, you can always go back and revisit them. You know, uh, be on a fire and something goes wrong. Gosh, I remember that podcast. <laughs> I got to go back and listen to it again. So I think the podcasting is a great tool to reinforce those things that we consider to be important. Absolutely. I totally agree. Thank you again. Thank you for being here. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Fireground Fitness Podcast today. Thanks to Don Abbott for taking time out of his schedule and sharing with us some of the lessons and knowledge that's been gleaned from this data collection from all of, you know, and special thank you to all the firefighters out there who submitted their medace for study and for analysis. Uh, that body of work, that information is really going to help us be more successful and more effective as we all move forward. So credit. If you're enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, please uh, subscribe, go on to Apple Podcasts, rate the podcast, leave a review, and feel free to shoot me an email or what have you. Appreciate your feedback. If you want to reach out to me, I can be found on Instagram, Facebook, uh, and or you can just email me directly, Gray at firegroundfitness.com. All right, folks. Hey, take the lessons we learned here today. Figure out ways to make yourself safer and more effective on the fire ground and in your life. Uh, Now go on out there and get some.